Welcome to Zero Cards, sixth installment of Stan TV, where our very own infectious disease doctor and chief medical officer, Dr. Stan Schwartz, along with our special guest, Mr. Daniel Wolfson, will answer the questions that are on your mind. As COVID-19 is a novel or new virus, there seems to be new information every single day. And making the right choices about your healthcare can be confusing. That's why we are here to arm you with actionable insights where it comes to communicating with the healthcare providers and making the best choices for your healthcare and loved ones. My name is Carrie Barth, Director of Sales at the Zero Card, and I'll be fielding the questions today. During our time together, we will be taking questions from you on COVID-19 and the path ahead. Please use the question and answer feature within Zoom to ask any questions. No question is too big or too small. So allow me to introduce and thank my teammate and infectious disease expert, Dr. Stan Schwartz for joining us today. Hey, good morning, Stan. Stan, you're on mute. Thank you, Carrie, and thanks for reminding me to unmute. It's been an interesting two weeks since our last broadcast, and a whole bunch of things have happened. A couple or three things I want to mention right up front. You know, the fire isn't out yet as far as COVID is concerned. We're now looking at states like Arizona are having significant uh, increase in cases, and it's not due to an increase in testing. It's due to an increase in cases because it's hospitalizations. So when you count hospitalizations, you can't blame it on a reduction in, you know, just a change in the way you do testing. Another thing we've learned is that blood type A may have some relationship to people getting a worse case of COVID or getting the complications in the lungs. And it looks like there's some relationship between the genetic code that gives you blood type A and whatever the genetic predisposition is to have you get a worse case. More to find out about that. And the other exciting thing is that vaccines are coming along. You know, a vaccine is moving into phase three now. And phase three means it's used on a much larger group of subjects. And it's not just to determine whether it's safe. It's also to determine whether it's effective. So those are the two things that we expect to learn in phase three. And in phase three, we'll also learn if there are any rare uncommon side effects, you know, those one in 10,000 type side effects that we haven't seen in the phase two studies. I'm anxious about that. See what comes out. There may well be a vaccine by the end of the year, but by the time it's manufactured, distributed, labeled, all those other things, most experts are pretty sure it's going to be significantly into 2021 until the vaccine is actually available for you, me, and Daniel and the rest of the audience. So with that, I'd like to introduce uh, my colleague and good friend, Daniel Wolfson from the ABIM Foundation in Philadelphia. Daniel, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and especially about Choosing Wisely, which is a program you guys originally developed for physicians, but now we look at patients, consumers using Choosing Wisely. Tell us a little bit about it. Right. Well, I want to tell you that I'm an A negative blood, so I'm uh, I'm not uh, encouraged by your report. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so choosing wisely has been around since 2012, and it started with nine specialty societies 
uh, providing 45 recommendations on tests and procedures where the risk did not weigh the benefits. Uh, they were unnecessary tests and procedures. And could we reduce that? And that would represent about $250 billion worth of savings in a year. And uh, although we talk about the savings, we really uh, framed it as better care, uh, safer care, doing no harm. And the campaign had two components. As Stan has said, we had a physician component with now 80 specialty societies telling their members uh, based on the evidence and based on things that are often done what they should not do or at least have a conversation uh, with their patient, uh, patients about their preferences. Um, and the other side of the campaign is working with consumer groups and having good conversations between patients and physicians. And to us, that was the core of this campaign. How can we improve conversations about what is necessary care? Um, and so uh, one of the things that Stan is very uh, fond of, and so am I, is the five questions that we ask uh, patients to have with their uh, physicians or clinicians. Do I really need this test? What are the risks and side effects? Are there simpler, safer options? What happens if I don't do anything? And what are the costs of this to me? And so that has been a very powerful conversation. And we've seen time examples of, of those conversations going on. We've seen examples of physicians putting this material in their waiting room. And um, you know, I've cynically thought that that would have no impact, but it really did have an impact. And what the message was, from the physician was, I'm willing to have these kinds of conversations. So glad to be here, Stan. Thanks. Thank you so much for inviting me. So Daniel, you know, let's take that one step further. So you're, I'm the doctor and you're the patient right now and you're sitting in my office and you came in and you uh, told me about having a, like a cold or something three weeks ago and you didn't go to the doctor. And I said to you, Daniel, why don't we just go ahead and get a COVID antibody test and, you know, let's see what it shows, see if you had COVID. I mean, how would you use those five questions to have a conversation with me? Or would you just say, sure, doc, whatever you say? Yeah. Do I, you know, do I really need that test? Um, uh, can we wait uh, a few days and see what happens? Let's do a wait and see kind of approach. Um, you know, I, you know, what are the risks of doing that test? Um, what is the inconvenience to me? What time will it take? What cost will it take? Um, what are the false negatives uh, or false positives of such a test? Uh, will I be a worried well after I get a false positive uh, and think I have COVID and have to quarantine? So to me, um, I'm not sure I want that test, doctor. I really want to think about it and maybe wait a little bit before I take that test. You know, I think those are the kind of questions that really help people have conversations. How do you see, you know, we have employers listening in, we have employers covered members listening in, we've got benefit advisor brokers listening in. How do you see them using, you know, in an age where we have such uncertainty, you know, this COVID era, when every week, you know, like I said earlier, every week something is different, something's changed. How do you see people using 
choosing wisely. I mean, is that something that should be a, you know, should everybody be a card carrying choosing wisely person? Well, I think the philosophy. Wait, do you have cards? <laughs> I do have a card. These are the cards that, <laughs> that we made up, and Stan has ten thousand of them. He'll he'll distribute it to all of you. Um, but um, you know, I I think the philosophy of choosing wisely is where is the evidence? And this campaign was very driven by evidence. And when people are talking about particular drugs uh, for treatment, and you begin to see what the evidence is and the risks, um, then you really start to question is, are you choosing wisely? Um, are you really doing an evidence-based approach to medicine or are you taking, you know, one example, two examples, maybe, you know, 10, 100 examples, but that's not science. That is not what medicine is based on. Medicine is based on large evidence-based uh, studies that put placebos and control, you know, control groups and experimental groups. And that's how we get the science. And to think otherwise, I think is a dangerous track. Oh, um, as one person in a White House said, well, it worked on somebody else. It must work on me, look at me. In fact, you know, the absence of something doesn't prove <laughs> that it in fact works. Um, placebos actually are uh, have proven to be more effective than drugs. Um, so um, we have to be careful about antidotes and not really look at the science. Look what they're doing, you know, to the vaccine. You know, they're going to do it in 18 months, they think. That'll be the fastest uh, drug ever to, uh, not drug, but fastest vaccine ever to come out. It took four, four years to come out with a vaccine in 1918. What's interesting is that, you know, a recent poll showed that if there is a vaccine released, only about 49% of people are willing to take it. So we, we yeah. have a little ways to go. Carrie, do we, do we have any questions coming in yet? Well, I, I really want to remind everyone right now just to be sure to use the question and answer feature um, to ask your questions. So please, you know, keep asking those. We do have some things coming in. Um, you guys brought up something really interesting. I love your conversation. And even before I even knew who Daniel Wilson was, I was already using the, the five questions personally. I have it downloaded to my phone, so love everything that you're doing. Um, you know, I wanna know, one of the questions is, how can choosing wisely help people really sort through all these different ideas, opinions about testing, treatment options, different drugs, and have better conversations with their docs? You know, Stan brought, you know, Dr. Schwartz, you said something really interesting about the commonality around blood type A. You know, those aren't things that we're seeing posted on some of the statistics where a lot of folks are going. So how can we use this to help us? Well, um, I have a particular viewpoint on how we get our information and from who. And um, the, uh, media is uh, not being a trusted source at this moment. Um, the most trusted source is Fauci, um, and he represents CDC. And uh, we made a decision around choosing wisely not to put up um, recommendations about COVID. It moves too fast. The evidence changes too fast. Um, but we have posted things. We have posted uh, evidence-based tables from the uh, Academy of uh, Health System Pharmacists. Um, 
some of the some of the things that um, are really important is not to divert resources, healthcare resources, away from things that will be important to treat COVID. One good example is blood. Um, we need to preserve blood at this time. So our friends from hematology uh, have had a campaign about, you know, why use two pints of blood when you can use one? And that's been a recommendation. So there are some recommendations that we kind of put forward that are pertinent to other resources um, that um, are important for COVID, but not directly in the treatment of COVID per se. Um, so uh, there are uh, people who said, you know, here are five recommendations uh, from a, a choosing wisely perspective. Some people recently did that, um, a group of them from the Society of Hospital Medicine uh, that uh, looked at the recommendations uh, from uh, uh, choosing wisely and put those out. Um, and you could find that on our website now. Uh, we have a link to that article. Um, but we, you know, we really look for the specialty societies, the experts to put out information. And uh, there's a plethora of information actually um, when you go search. And I tell people to rely on CDC. They are a trusted source of information. They're up to date. If you wanna see trends in COVID, go to Johns Hopkins. They have an amazing amount of information about the trends in COVID. Um, but be careful where you're getting your information because um, I, I think that there's a lot of, uh, you know, every, they call it novel because we're finding our way and every day we're learning new things. And I think only a, a, a CDC can really keep up with what is actually going on. It's just so fast moving. Um, we weren't, you know, uh, some of the things that we said at one point, you know, is don't wear a mask. Now we're saying wear a mask. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's not a bad thing. You know, Stan would say, you know, we don't always know in healthcare. It's a good thing to say there's uncertainty in healthcare. Um, and it's, 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 it builds trust actually in healthcare when we say we don't know. This is an uncertain kind of a thing going on. Here's our best knowledge at this time. Now we're saying wear masks and you know and that's important you know we've got more evidence to say that masks are a good thing. Social distancing is a good thing. So Daniel just for the audience benefit where do they where do they go to learn about the choosing wisely information? I thought you'd never ask. Uh, www.choosingwisely.org um, there's also an app that you could download that has all the recommendations. We have 800 recommendations now. Um, so um, those are all on an app, but they're all on our website. All the um, patient information um, is on our, our website too. And uh, Stan, I thought you were getting at a question in what, what brokers could do, what, um, what, what, could, what could they do to uh, advance um, the reduction on unnecessary uh, care. And I think it's holding health plans um, and uh, organizations accountable. And I think it's a simple question. What are you doing in your health plan or your hospital or your health system to reduce unnecessary care? 
What steps have you taken? What information have you reviewed? Show me how, in fact, you have reduced um, unnecessary care uh, from the choosing wisely list. How, um, the, the best example um, is antibiotics. Um, what have you done to reduce antibiotics? It's a public health um, issue because um, we develop resistance when we overuse it. Um, it's a cost issue and it's a quality issue. Um, how, what have you done in that area to reduce antibiotic, inappropriate antibiotic use? Um, sinusitis, uh, headaches, uh, you know, headache uh, imaging for headaches. What have you done for imaging of headaches, sinusitis? Um, and, and, and make, uh, you know, create a dialogue uh, with uh, the health plans and health systems that you contract with. Gary? Those are really great points. Um, I, I think you mentioned something earlier, uh, Daniel, about this saving opportunity for $250 billion. And when I think about that, I think about describing what it looks like for the typical person, the way we, people like myself and other people who are employees and families and patients, how they access healthcare traditionally versus like this choosing wisely way of going about um, accessing healthcare. And then the second part of that is just what's the benefit and impact to the individual as, as well as the employers who are offering these benefits? Well, I, I think it gets down to doing no harm and harm comes physically, harm comes financially, harm comes from inconvenience, uh, our time, um, so, um, and our anxiety, you know, we all have stories about unnecessary care uh, being given. I was given an MRI to find out, um, a brain scan to find out that I've had a cyst in my brain since I was born. Um, why all of a sudden, uh, with an incidental gnome, as they call it, get me worrying about something that's been in my back of my skull since I was born. Um, so, the, you know, the incidental findings um, are, can be uh, as costly as the machine, uh, that the test that you've done, or the downside costs. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, you've given me a, a brain scan, and now you need to give me another brain scan, you think. Um, so there's a whole cascade effect that occurs when, for instance, you give an unnecessary EKG and you find a little blip on the EKG and now you're doing a, a, tr a stress test and now you're, you're going to give me a cath, uh, you know, because you found everybody funks a, uh, their, their a stress test, um, not me, but most people. Um, but uh, so the, the cascade effect uh, is dollars that we don't even account when we think about this. But, you know, what's really important is the quality of care, the value of care, um, doing no harm, having safe care. I, 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 we've ran this campaign not thinking about the cost. Um, we wanted to engage physicians uh, in, in a quality discussion and not in a cost discussion. Um, if that's a byproduct, so be it. Um, but that was not our motivation. Our motivation was for physicians and health systems to be better stewards of precious resources. Resources that frankly can be used, as we know, upstream, 
um, on things that really do make an impact, like vaccinations, uh, like uh, you know, f better food. Um, those things make uh, a huge impact on health. And uh, now we see that we've ignored uh, those social determinants of health and their effect on COVID um, and uh, rates of uh, uh, death, rates of uh, incidence. And uh, if there's anything that we hope uh, this pandemic brings out, a tragic pandemic, is where should we be putting our healthcare dollars? Um, it, we've long ignored public health issues. Stan, do you have any comments for that or would you like me to ask the next question here? Why don't you go ahead to the next question so we get some audience questions okay. in. Yeah, so this one actually came in anonymous and it says, who is in charge at who? So the World Health Organization and why are they changing their stance all the time? You know, I, I think the listener is probably referring to the publication that uh, Dr. Van Kerkhove uh, put out last earlier this week or last week saying that asymptomatic people don't spread COVID. So if you have COVID and you don't have any symptoms, you don't spread it. And it turned out she's now saying, well, they didn't quite understand me. And Dr. Fauci came out and said, you know, that's just absolutely wrong. There may be, you know, when you say people are asymptomatic, that means you don't have any symptoms. There's two ways that can happen. The first is that you get the COVID infection and you're one of those people that never gets any symptoms, okay? And that's anywhere from 30, 40% of people never get any symptoms. But you could also be one of those people <clears throat> who is in the very early stage before you get symptoms. We call those people pre-symptomatic. There may be a difference. People who are pre-symptomatic may be a little more likely to spread the infection. But the bottom line is the World Health Organization retracted that statement and said that uh, they were kind of misunderstood or taken out of context. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think we're going to see this kind of whipsawing, as Daniel said, because as new publications come out, new information becomes available. You know, there was a publication about hydroxychloroquine and when the peer reviewers, the people who read the literature and really dig into it and ask, you know, to assure it's good medical evidence said, we want to see the underlying data. Well, the people that wrote the article didn't want to share the data. So the, the article was withdrawn. <clears throat> Anything moving this fast with so many people working on it, we are going to see this whipsaw effect where people say things and then they turn out not to be true based on either analyzing the research or new research that comes out. I think that's super helpful for you to cover that. And you actually have hit on a few other things that are coming in from others. Um, Cause Sally was asking about sharing your thoughts about the new Moderna vaccine to be released potentially in the fall. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add to that or not. I know you brought it up here a little bit ago. Wow, I mean, that's really an interesting vaccine. You know, most vaccines we have, you know, to, to make it real simple is you take the virus, you kill it, or you inactivate it. You, you, make it, you make it infectious, but not able to cause any symptoms. And then you inject that into somebody and your immune system sees it. You make antibodies and you become immune. 
this Moderna vaccine is just fascinating. What it does is it's a vaccine that uses a piece of RNA, messenger RNA, it's called genetic code. And when you inject it, it causes your own body to make the virus proteins, not the whole virus, but just the virus proteins that your own immune system reacts to. Totally fascinating. We don't really have a vaccine that works this way. You're not injecting the protein, you're injecting the instructions for your body to make the protein and then have your own immune system fight it off. Is it gonna be effective? Is it gonna cause a problem with the immune system? Is it gonna make people less susceptible? Don't know yet. That's what's being studied. That'll that'll be phase three to tell us about that. And I, I'm sitting here in my mind thinking who are gonna be the folks who are going to be the ones that to take on this uh, task of being we, able to receive the, it. There's actually now a group of people who have volunteered to become artificially infected, you know, with a known dose of COVID because they, they just want to do their public service to get a vaccine developed. And I think it goes without saying that we all appreciate those folks doing so. Um, all right. So one of the things we had also come in and keep, you know, keep asking the question answers. We have some more things coming up here as well. So Adrian was asking, what can you tell us about any updates to the concern that antibody tests, um, because they were originally like approximately 50% accurate, what has changed or what can you tell us about the antibody tests? You know, I think Daniel made a really good point when he, you know, challenged the doctor about getting the antibody test done. <clears throat> the antibody test, you know, has false negatives. It, you may have antibodies, but the test doesn't show it, or false positives where it shows up that you have antibodies, but you really don't, or you have antibodies that won't protect you against the virus. Think about the antibody test. Are you going to make a decision based on the test? It's not you know, we used to think the antibody test was going to be your passport to go back out in the world because you'd be immune. We know that a false positive test may mean you don't actually have antibodies. We didn't even know the antibodies protect you. Mm -hmm. So there really is, outside of a public health study, I can't think of a reason to get the antibody test done because you're not going to, it's not going to inform you to make a valid decision on what to do. So to me, not a good idea yet, yet. All right, thanks for that. Okay, so another question came in from Ashim, and Ashim's wondering, what advice do you have for businesses who may need to have periods of time where they allow for an employee to work from home during the time they may need to care for a sick child or dependent to help reduce the spread? You know, and I know a lot of benefit advisors are saying this now, you've got to have flexible leave policies. You've mm -hmm. got to allow people to stay home when they feel sick because the last thing you want is somebody who thinks they need to soldier on and come into the office sick. You know, the American way was to always work when you're sick, work when you're well, you know, work when your kids are sick. That's got to change. I mean, that's just, you know, bringing, that's just bringing kindling to the office when you do that. Um, kids are going to be out of school. What about when schools have to close? We need to get strongly consider working from home as a reasonable response to the viral, you know, to this viral pandemic. 
I'm already hearing employers that are already finding it somewhat difficult and how they're going to get people to come back to work who maybe have adjusted quite well to working from home and found some productivity there. So I think your points on flexible policies is extremely helpful. Uh, let's see, we do have some more questions coming in here. So this one's anonymous and it says, you know, over the Memorial weekend, there were pictures, you know, posted all over with crowds at the Lake of the Ozarks, concerned about many, uh, concerned about the spread of the virus. And now we've got, they're also asking is what are the likelihood of getting and spreading COVID-19 with the crowds of thousands at these protests across the United States being in close proximity of each other? Are we gonna see a second wave of COVID-19? So I saw that picture, I think everybody did. And my first question was even without COVID, would I really wanna be in a swimming pool with 80,000 people? I think it's kind of fun <laughs> Ooh, to me. I wanted to think about thing, can this be our test, you know, population that was willing to go out there and take the risk? But well, what you know, think from the spread from a, the second wave, you mentioned something earlier in conversation about lag. So maybe you can incorporate the lag into this piece. So let's say today, okay, 100 people got infected, okay? And each one of those 100 people could infect two more people. Great. But it takes them five days, you know, around five days, you know, until they get sick. And between the second and fifth day, they may start to get infectious to other people. But those people won't show symptoms for five days. And they won't hit the hospital for two to three weeks. So when you think about it, it's not like, you know, the movies where you get exposed to the virus and your face gets all wrinkly and the veins show up, you know, two hours later. You know, we've got a two to three week lag until we see the manifestations, hospitalizations, uh, people dying. So it's going to ramp up. If that pool party was a real source of transmission, we're not going to see it for six to eight weeks or more until we see people hitting the hospital and people getting really sick. Now, fortunately, it was outdoors. So outdoors, you've got wind, you've got these physical factors where the virus will tend to be dispersed. But those folks in Arkansas did a really interesting experiment. We're gonna see what happens. Deal. Um, I know you brought up, uh, and I cannot pronounce the words very well, but Justin was asking about hydrochloroquine um, and how there's been reversals in some of the major medical uh, publications about this. And you know what did they say and why and why they changed their stance. I actually would like to, not from a medical standpoint, Daniel, um, kind of pose this to you as how we can do that you incorporate choose wisely into something about wondering about these medical publications and using evidence as well on these changing of stances. Is that something that you can help us with? Well, um, it's always important to you know, know if uh, a study is valid. And one way a consumer can think about it is um, who did this study? Um, was it done by a pharmaceutical company uh, that would like to see results? Is there uh, some conflict of interest that might go on in a study? Uh, that would be the first thing I would want to see as, as a consumer. Um, and one study does not prove that it's always the case. Um, you need multiple studies. Um, I would want to see uh, what kind of population was tested. In this country, we tend to uh, not have good representation of, of uh, racial um, uh, minorities. 
um, and uh, that's something that people are working on. But uh, one study uh, doesn't necessarily, you know, prove that a drug is is good. You need multiple studies. Um, so from a, from a, a a point of view of a consumer, um, I think you always um, should be questioning and talking to your physician about the um, uh, the accumulation of knowledge about a new treatment and test. Um, and to rely on your physician. Your physician um, is in many ways your best scientist, um, particularly if you're internal medicine, right, Stan? Um, so um, so um, that, that's, that's my, uh, you know, if it's too good to be true, it's, it's probably not. Okay, great. So let's see here. We have an anonymous question coming in here. So what are we seeing as cities are beginning to open back up? What a great question that is. You know, New York City has, has just started to open back up. So that's going to be really interesting because they've got high population density. They had a lot of, of COVID infections. Um, we'll see. And again, open up. Two weeks goes by, fine. Three weeks goes by, fine. It's like we said, it's the lag and it's going to be four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks or more. You know, we saw that first case, remember in February, the first death from COVID was in February the 6th, I believe. And now let's go ahead to March, April, May, June, four months. We're now, you know, well over 100,000 deaths. So that's what, you know, the kind of growth of an infection like this can do. Um, you know, we've got the, go ahead, Daniel. No, go ahead, Stan. I just wanted to make a point. Uh, you know, the city of Tulsa was way in the forefront of shutting down. We're just beginning to open up, but our president will be down here for a rally, he says, uh, in a week. And, you know, he said no masks and wants the stadium filled. We don't know where it's going to be yet. So that's going to be another experiment where we see what happens when we don't know how many people are infected in the community? What happens when we put people back together for extended period of time, and then these people go out to wherever they came from? You know, we will learn a lesson from each one of these experiments. New York City opening will be an experiment. Mm -hmm. What's happening in Arizona right now where they're starting to run out of intensive care unit beds will be an experiment. What I truly hope is that we learn from a public health standpoint what we need to do best. So I was just going to add that um, I think uh, with or without a surge, and with a surge it'll um, really increase uh, the mental health pandemic. And the mental health pandemic will come from the uh, stress of the workforce, the healthcare workforce, and it'll come in stress and mental health issues of people having then to again um, have a lockdown, uh, which would happen if there is a surge. And so if I'm a broker or an insurance agent, I would be looking to see what happens to my uh, mental health claims. Because um, I, I, I really think that we're gonna be in the, the second pandemic will be a mental health pandemic. And this country, um, mental health uh, infrastructure um, is not what it should be. And um, so I am quite worried about that pandemic 
uh, coming next, uh, particularly on the workforce. If these people have to do what they courageously did already a second time, I think you're going to see people, uh, uh, physicians, not being able to, uh, to to meet the challenge. It's just too much. So that that worries me the most about a surge. Uh, we, we probably will be better prepared for a surge. We have better ventilators. There's better, um, you know, uh, ways of isolating people. But the effect on mental health of the patient population and the uh, workforce um, will just be, um, I think, uh, a bigger pandemic than we would imagine. And um, I know the urge to go out and mingle, but um, I, I think that um, uh, we have to be concerned that uh, wealth uh, doesn't uh, trump uh, um, health, no pun intended. One, one shameless plug I'd like to make is in two weeks, and then two weeks after that, we will have a more in-depth discussion about the effect of primary care on COVID and how primary care is such an important cog in the whole public health sphere. Carrie? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate everything. You guys, your passion, you know, Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. And Dr. Stan Schwartz, your passion and your interest in helping is very much apparent. And we sincerely hope that having access to our experts in the field has been a valuable resource as we navigate the impacts of COVID-19. For more information, including a chat capability where questions are answered live, please visit the zerocard.com slash COVID-19. Okay, on behalf of Dr. Stan Schwartz, Chief Medical Officer, our special guest, Mr. Daniel Wolfson, and myself, Carrie Barth, Director of Sales at the Zero Card. We thank you and hope to see you again in two weeks at the same time, same place. Take care and stay healthy. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs>